welcome back to Learner from a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, joined again by Matt Christensen and Tim Cox. Fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering um, about the pause. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, this week we are continuing our series, uh, our world history series. Last uh, week we did the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century. And this week we'll be continuing with the 1910s or teens, whatever they're called. Um, I guess most of us most familiar with this uh, decade as the World War One decade. So that's what we're going to start our podcast with today is discussing war. And that's going to pick us up there and uh, take us through a little bit of what happened in the 1910s. Matt? Okay, so the 1910s uh, were the... The big war we'll get to in a minute, but there was a lot of conflict going on starting uh, just right at the beginning of the decade. And, and much of it was had to do with the Ottoman Empire losing stuff. Uh, the first one was an incident in Morocco called the Agadir crisis. Agadir? I don't know. Probably pronouncing it wrong. Uh, but basically the uh, French colonial, uh, or, or rather the, the French-backed sultan was facing down a revolution, was not doing so well, and so France sent a whole ton of troops down there to, to back him. At the time, because everybody wanted colonies everywhere, uh, Britain and Germany decided that they had a say in this. Uh, Germany was really not happy about French buildup of troops down in Africa because that would uh, challenge their own territorial influence. It would be a destabilizing uh, effect on, on the German influence in the region. And so they got all mad. Um, this was able to res be resolved diplomatically, partially after... Um, Germany went through their own massive stock market crash, lost 30% of the German stock market's value in a single day while this oh. was going on. And so they had to go deal with that. Uh, but anyway, this kind of set the stage for some other stuff that would go down in North Africa. Uh, shortly thereafter, Italy looked at that and said, well, the French just dumped a whole bunch of troops down there and they were fine. We've had all these secret agreements going on with all the other European powers that basically give us control of Libya, and we've never done anything with this. This is how things worked back then. The European powers kind of divvied up Africa amongst themselves and everywhere else. So uh, Italy looked at the political calculus and said, yeah, Libya is rightfully ours because we've negotiated it with all these other European countries, therefore it's ours, um, even though the Ottomans ostensibly control this area. I mean, and, and we're not even close to the point where we're talking about the Libyans controlling Libya. Um, Can I have a quick uh, refresher on what the Ottomans controlled, what the Ottoman well, Empire consisted yeah, of? The, the, well, maybe the Ottoman, even in that decade? Yeah, yeah the, the Ottoman Empire... Uh, was I mean it doesn't exist anymore what's left is Turkey but it was an empire controlling the area that Turkey is in now plus most of the Balkan states in Eastern Europe plus a large swath of North Africa and the Middle East 
Um, and it was truly an empire. And at its uh, greatness, it would have been considered great. Um, very much a, a uh, religious state, um, a, a Muslim empire. But it had, it was already in decline. And uh, with the Agadir incident, um, where where the French revolutionary or the the French forces put down a revolution against a French-backed dictator, that was kind of one of the things that uh, really uh, spurred on some significant kinetic events in the 1910s that would see the Ottoman Empire shattered. Um, and so there you have it. You have Turkey sitting there controlling a whole bunch of territory, but just on a world stage, they had been losing influence for some time. And, and Tim can tell us more about that, perhaps when we talk about the political side of things, uh, you know, politics and war being intermeshed so much. I'm going to talk more about the wars. But anyway, uh, you, you come to this point where Italy is now considering Libya ripe for the picking and, and believes that they have a, a right to it. And so they charge down there. And you have the Italo-Turkish War, uh, or the Italian-Ottoman War of 1911 to 1912, where the Italians show up on the coastal region of Libya, occupy the major cities, then realize that they can't really go further inland because uh, they enjoy naval supremacy. They, they completely stomp the Ottoman naval forces in the area. And uh, but once that you get out of uh, gun range of your your ship based artillery, it kind of degenerates into trench warfare. And so they they run into a stalemate for some time. But here's the thing, you now have another power charging down into Ottoman controlled territory and slapping the Ottomans in the faces. Uh, the Balkan states look at this and go, this is a great idea. We should do that. Um, and and Italy was even aware that their invasion of Libya might spur this on, and indeed it did. And so while the Italo-Turkish War is going on, you have the First Balkan War, which starts up in 1912 and ends in 1913. And this is just an unmitigated disaster for the Ottomans. Basically, every Ottoman possession in Eastern Europe uh, rises up and says, we're done with you, and we're going to be our own thing. And they do, and they succeed, and the Ottoman defeat is uh, crushing. They they lose 80-something percent, 83 uh, percent of their European territories, 69 percent of their European population. Um, they are just shattered in Europe, and it's just another thing where the Ottomans, uh, their, their decline becomes more and more manifest. Uh, and, and so you have that Italian-Turkish war leading directly, directly spurring on the first Balkan wars. And now you have all these new Balkan states and it continues to complicate the calculus in Europe because the Ottoman Empire and Germany are aligned with each other. And Germany is watching as, as their own ambitions are being uh, thwarted or, or rather um, contested by France and the their Ottoman ally is just getting crushed over here. And so everything is becoming less and less stable. 
and and that eventually sets the conditions for World War One, which kicks off in 1914 with the assassination of um, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Tim's going to take uh, exception to the fact that you mentioned uh, mentioned. In the, I, I will in let you go into the specifics of the assassination <laughs> when we get into that. But um, go go for yeah. it. I've got plenty to talk about. <laughs> he, his, his assassination basically triggers a chain of events where alliances are called upon, uh, tensions and influences are questioned and defended, and suddenly you have powers combining and dividing, uh, and eventually coalescing around. Uh, the central powers and the allies and you have France and Britain on the one side uh, Germany Austria Hungary and uh, by the way Austria Hungary is one thing at this point Um, you have Germany Austria Hungary and the Ottoman Empire on the other side and Russia is on the allied side until 1917 when they go off and do their own thing we'll get to that later um but World War One kicks off. Um, interestingly, a couple notes here. Uh, World War One is widely regarded as the first war where the airplane became a thing. Uh, it's not totally true. The first aerial bomb was dropped by the Italians during that aforementioned Italo-Turkish War, when the Italians went into what is now Libya. Um, The first aerial recon sortie was, again, flown by the Italians during that same war. And so you had some of that stuff coming in beforehand. World War I is where you saw it adopted on a large scale. You had aerial bombardment uh, by German airships and zeppelins of London. Um, You had reconnaissance sorties being flown all over the place on both sides so that British artillery and German artillery could more accurately find enemy positions and lob shells at them. Well, it didn't take both sides for long to figure out that, hey, all these airplanes flying overhead, uh, they're giving directions to their artillery, which is killing us on the ground. Maybe we should stop those reconnaissance airplanes. And so they figured out how to put machine guns on airplanes, how to get machine guns on airplanes to fire in such a way that they wouldn't shoot off their own propellers. Uh, At some point, the Germans realized that Now that our planes are fighting each other and getting shot down, it would be an awesome idea if we could get some mechanism for a pilot to survive his airplane being shot down. And so they started giving their people parachutes. The Allies didn't do that so much. A little weird. German (laughs) flyers had parachutes. Anyway, um, World War One, in, in general, would take up an entire podcast session in and of itself. Uh, and right. So I will hit, uh, and I'm not even going to cover the major battles, uh, other than to say that World War One was a horrifically bloody war, um, and it it is unfathomable how bad it was. If if you want some idea of almost what it was like, I, I hate to recommend a Hollywood movie, but uh, I actually think this one deals with the material in a in a mature and graceful way. Um, the movie 1917 gives you just a taste of of what it might have looked like, um, and even that. I mean, ugh. anyway. Um, now, I have not mentioned the United States during World War One because the United States was not really there for much of it. Uh, we lo- we like to look at 
the United States coming in because of the sinking of the uh, of a ship, the Lusitania, um, that was sunk in 1915 by a German U-boat submarine. Um, that was one of the factors that brought the U.S. into the war, but it wasn't the only one. And the U.S. really only showed up in 1917 and later. Uh, at that point, the the Germans had had made some breakthroughs and had pushed the Allied powers, France and and Germany. They they, they did have their backs to the wall, and it really was the arrival of the Yankees that kind of saved the day. Um, but by no means was this a a war that um, you know the U.S. You know, we we did not do the preponderance of the work uh, in defeating the Germans that had been done by the British and the French. There is a humorous anecdote if you can consider World War One a bar fight. Um, you know you have Germany, Austria, Hungary, Britain, and France just slugging it out for the better part of the evening, uh, getting progressively more and more bloody and more and more drunk until finally at the end of the day. The sober American walks over, smashes a bottle on top of the German's head, he collapses to the floor, and then he takes all of the credit after having <laughs> sat at the bar for most of the evening. Okay, that's not quite accurate, but it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's easy to overstate the American contribution, um, but I... uh, we definitely were there at the end, and it was okay, so... pivotal. So I, I think the layman... And once again, I represent the layman, uh, yes. understands World War II, the impetus behind World War II pretty well um, mm-hmm. from an, an American point of view, but also just in general. Um, you know, there's a good guy. Uh, there's a very clear bad guy. Um, at least the Nazis are, you know, fill that role pretty pretty well. Um, sure. In World War One, I, I, the layman, me, the, the actual reason that there was so much war and why it became so all-encompassing and, and why the United States decided that we had to get involved, obviously, boat sinking aside, what, what would be the quick one-minute summation of what, uh, what was driving a world war at that time that wasn't related to you know, mass genocide? Yeah, well, uh, there was that, too, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I don't know. Tim, do you want to take this or do you want me to, since you're doing politics and, and they're so intertwined? Uh, why don't you start and then I can I can chime in if I want to. Add All right. Anything. So 30 seconds. I'll take the first 10 seconds and then I'll give Tim the last 20. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, in 10 seconds, it's it's influence and alliances. You have these large powers competing for influence. And in order to maintain their influence, you have diplomatic maneuvering, alliances, agreements, secret treaties. If you do this, I will do that. And if this thing happens to you, then I will take this action accordingly to support you or to stab you in the face. Um, And the chain of events just activated those alliances. When Franz Ferdinand was assassinated um, by a revolutionary, by an anarchist, by by a whatever he was, Gavrilo Princip, uh, one group decided to take out another group in retaliation. Uh, in re-retaliation, another group called upon its friends to help it not get beat up. And then that first group that was attacking 
called upon its friends. And you have this chain of friends being called on and the, the gunfire and the bloodshed escalates and escalates until it really does become a world war. That was more than 10 seconds. I apologize, Tim. You have no time left. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Carl, the, repeat the question one more time and just want to make sure. Generally, yeah. What's the, the reason that, that, the, uh, that there was that the world went to war in, in World War One? I don't think to, to the layman, or at least not to me, is not generally as clear as you know why the world went to war in World War II, where the Nazis are trying to just generally, you know, just like Napoleon back, uh, you know, 200 years ago, take over a bunch of land. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it was not entirely clear to me what World War One, what the impetus was uh, specifically. Yeah, so it, I'm gonna go ahead and go wide outside of my expertise with with uh, rampant speculation here um so any any real historians listening in i apologize um feel free to send us angry messages correcting um if they're real historians they're listening to a podcast entitled learn it from a lame <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> um but so i mean i, I think matt's answer it, hits it on the nose just to add you know other part i think part of the question is not why did you know why why did war happen because you know conflict has always been a part of humanity but world war one why did it happen on such a global scale and why was the the um mortality so atrocious i think um are are the questions so, you know, Matt explained kind of the, the alliances and so forth. I, I think there's something to be said for the, the, shifting, um, the, the shifting face of the international landscape. Um, I'm going to talk in just a second about how many nations um, underwent a shift in the 1910s. And you start to see, um, you know, changes in the way that, uh, you know, countries and economies are run, um, changes in how people identify themselves, um, you know, national identities and those kinds of things. Um, of course, the shifts in technology, um, as Matt mentioned, you know, it's not like all of the technologies that were at play in World War II were brand new. They'd been around before, but this was really the first time that they'd been used in such large scale. And I think um, world War one in many ways was kind of a reckoning of the a world and an international community that that was unprepared for the repercussions of the things that had been developed both politically with alliances um, internationally and internationally with different national identities um, uh, with technology and, and development of of weapons that facilitated the slaughter of of um, armies um it also we could bring into the discussion the complex um nature of the the uh, and connections between rulers among nations the the funny thing um in the world war one that became apparent was that all of the leaders of all these nations were not just um, connected diplomatically, they were connected as family. Um, there's a, a story of one uh, British 
leader. And I'm trying to remember if it was World War One or World War II. I think it was World War One, where actually the the British royalty had changed their names because they had German names. So um, hmm. the the British royalty was you know is Sax, House of Saxe Coburg Gotha. Um, and that's all German stuff. <laughs> so, so the the British royalty had to pick and say, well, let's uh, let's use one of our British holdings. Let's call ourselves the House of Windsor. Um, and so, and so now to this day, it's the the House of Windsor is you know the the royalty of England. Um, the um, the one of the famous military leaders, I think there was one in World War One and one in World War Two, was Battenberg. Well, that's a German-sounding name, so they changed it to Mount Batten. You know, Berg in German means mountain, and so instead of Battenberg, Mount Batten. Um, so you'll you'll read about the Battenbergs in the history books. Um, but yeah, they were all family. Um, Queen Victoria was <laughs> had hardly a drop of English blood in her. Um, and all of that played into how these alliances played out. And you see in the 1910s this kind of anguished uh, modernization happening where the world was shifting from a uh, from these kind of these monarchies and kind of old fashioned empire style um, governments and principalities into modern republics. And and so you see a lot of that happening. I, I'm again, not qualified to explain how this all interacted, but I, I do believe that those factors played into how World War One happened and why it happened. So. All right. By the way, live fact check. Uh, true, Tim, by the way, you did a good job. World War One was when the House of Windsor was renamed 17th of July, 1917, uh, due to anti-German sentiment. Yeah. There you go, and, and uh, you you had this situation where where um, the yeah the British royalty was having to defend themselves as you know the kind of their critics were calling them aliens and of course but you know you've got these these British chaps who uh, you know speak the Queen's English anyways yeah it, it was just an interesting scenario and they had to kind of bend over backwards to prove they were true real British um, leaders anyways. I mentioned that there was a first Balkan War. There was a second Balkan War that immediately followed this. Uh, and after the first Balkan War, you had all of these European uh, territories that were suddenly free from Ottoman rule. And as European powers do, the big question was, who gets what? Um, and so you had uh, Serbia, Greece, and, uh, and, and to some degree Romania, but mostly Serbia, Greece, and Bulgaria uh, looking at who gets to control what areas. And they come to a decision, and Bulgaria is not happy with this decision. And so they kick off the second Balkan War. Uh, and, and this does not go well, uh, not or for Bulgaria, rather. Uh, Bulgaria is, is pretty soundly defeated by uh, Serbia and Greece. Romania comes... Uh, and, and intervenes as well on on the side of the Serbians and Grecians, uh, and and the war ends with the Treaty of Bucharest. Uh, Bulgaria not only does not gain anything out of this, but actually has to cede some of its gains from from the previous agreements at the end of the first Balkan War. Um, this kind of drives Bulgaria to. Uh, 
to a a stance that they're that they are not happy with this. They're forced to accept it because they've been militarily defeated, but they are are going to do whatever they can going forward to reverse these losses. And so when World War One comes around, Bulgaria sides with the central powers, uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary, in an effort to regain some of that influence if, as, as they try to support the central powers' agendas and expansions uh, and, and their um, engagements throughout Europe. So one, one other conflict in Europe Again, stemming from the question of who gets to control and influence what. Right. So, so back to World War One. Just uh, a couple of quick facts about it. Um, it. It's useful to get an idea of the scale of this fight here, um, and and it's ridiculous in in comparison to what you have today. Uh, Total combatant strength on both sides. On the Allied side, over the course of the war, you had 42,950,000 uh, personnel fielded. Uh, on the side of the Central Powers, you had 25 million fielded. Casualties and losses of on, on the Allied side, you had 5.5 million military killed in action. Uh, 12.8 million wounded. On the side of the Central Powers, you had 4.4 million killed and 8.4 million wounded. You had 4,000 civilian losses on the Allied side and 3.7 million civilian losses on the side of the Central Powers. Uh, those numbers are are beyond ridiculous and are only matched by one other event in human history which we will talk about two podcasts from now. <laughs> um, I guess uh, maybe two other events when we talk about the uh, the Great Leap Forward. But mm. anyway, um, the, the World War One was was truly a landmark in terms of people waking up and realizing how bad things could get, or starting to realize it. Uh, it was also a, it, it marked massive changes in military. Doctrine and tactics. At the beginning of the war, you had things like cavalry charges with soldiers on horseback. Uh, when you run a bunch of guys on horses against a line of machine guns, it doesn't work so well. Uh, automated weaponry, air power, artillery bombardment, all of that uh, changed the face of how we fight permanently, and we've never gone back. Uh, even down to the uniforms, at the beginning of the of the war, you had uh, bright colors, uh, dress uniforms, and all of these things. By the end of the war, everyone was in gray or drab green, um, because you do not want to stand out. Um, the war ended in 1918, uh, November 11th, mostly, uh, which is weird, because you would think that after something this bad, everyone would want to take a break. But no, uh, in December of 1918, you have the Latvian War of Independence, where Latvia uh, is, well, it's independent. It's hanging out there being Latvia. And the Soviet Union, uh, who disappeared from the World War I scene in 1917 so that they could go become the Soviet Union, 
they come in and say, no, you're not going to be independent. Uh, we're taking over. And so the Soviets invade Latvia. Weirdly, Germany, who has just been through hell and back and back to hell and back, um, ostensibly comes to the aid of the Latvians and they start mixing it up with the Russians right there. Um, and and that's the thing. Uh, the Russians are driven back, but then it kind of becomes apparent that, wait a minute, these German guys aren't just here to fight Russians. They're here for, well, they're trying to take over. So Germany has just been through everything, and they are already uh, trying to establish their their influence in Latvia. And, and this continues for some time until they're finally... Uh, defeated the german backed units are 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 taken down and and you have a a blissfully independent latvia for a little bit um it, it doesn't last very long but but this conflict is over in about a year um the the strange thing is it's happening literally a month and a half after uh well not even that half a month after the end of World War One, uh, and and that is kind of the final war that we'll talk about in the 1910s. Uh, one of them dominated all the others, um, but this was a a decade of of conflict and blood. Uh, much of it central or, or centered around um, European vying for influence and and possession another uh thing that went along with world war one and we'll cover it here uh it was a, a major event a major loss of life that all too frequently gets overlooked in in 1914 as as world war one was kicking off the ottoman empire was was getting into the war on the side of the central powers germany and austria hungary for many years, the the Muslim population uh, of the Ottoman Empire uh, had been in a uneasy and sometimes violent coexistence with a, a number of minority groups, in particular Armenians, uh, Armenian Christians, who lived all throughout the Ottoman Empire and, and throughout the area that is Turkey today. Uh, there had been different they'd been second-class citizens for a very long time and and had been subjected to a number of depredations and, and massacres uh, throughout their 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 time in the empire um, in the late 1800s and in, in early 1900s uh, in 1909 there was uh, in the town of Adana or Adana there was a, a massacre where between 15 and 30,000 uh, Armenians were were killed outright. Uh, when when the first Balkan War happened and the um, you know the the Ottomans lost so much of their European territory, uh, something I didn't cover there was that there was a large scale um, dislocation and massacre of many of the Muslims that were in that area. And the Ottoman Empire received about 850,000 plus refugees 
uh, from these areas. And, and many Muslims that had been living in the Balkans were killed outright as well. Uh, this did not help the mood back down in, in areas like Turkey. And the desire for revenge was pretty strong. And so when World War I kicked off, it was very easy for the powers in, well, in power to look at the Armenians and say they are complicit with the enemy. They're going to undermine our war effort. They are a threat. Therefore, we're going to deport them all. And by deport, what that translated to was, uh, if not outright executions, forced death marches down into the Syrian deserts where they were, well, they were simply marched down there and then left to, to die. Uh, in other cases, there were mass drownings, burnings, shootings, uh, all manner of um, things inflicted on these populations to kill them. Uh, to get rid of them, rampant sexual violence against women, um, just all kinds of things. And and at the end of this, um, th this was so bad. The it's it's uh, you know th this had been observed by other powers that were in the area. Even the Americans had a presence here um, through because remember at this time the Americans were not in World War One yet. We were neutral. And we did have observers that could see this happening uh, throughout uh, Turkey and throughout other Ottoman-controlled areas. Uh, and, it, and it was reported back. And it was, um, you know, it, 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 the, the German workers and engineers that were down there helping their allies with uh, train systems and things were disgusted by it, uh, which is a little bit ironic. Um, but they... Uh, yeah, it, it was stomach-turning to them as well. Um, the the powers that uh, some of the key people that were behind this uh, genocide, there were the three Pashas. Um, after World War One ended, um, they were subjected to a military courts-martial, uh, kind of similar to the war trials that happened after World War Two, and they were condemned to death in absentia. That court's martial was later overturned because of some reason. Um, it, it was found to be invalid. I, I don't know. Um, two of those three Pashas were later assassinated by Armenian, um, uh, essentially, vigilantes. Um, but it, at the end of all of this, you had a, a death toll of around 1,300,000 people that were subjected to what is tantamount, well, it, not even tantamount to, it flat out was a systematic extermination. Um, this is recognized uh, by, by almost all of the major world powers today, uh, Russia, the US, and, and, and many others. Uh, Turkey continues to deny that the Armenian genocide was a genocide. They, they do not use that term. Uh, and that's a major sticking point um, where, you know, in, in general, it, 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 is, it is a cause of, of, of international friction. Um, I mean, as bad as international friction is today, this was pretty, this, this was absolutely horrific uh, back in 1914 um, uh, to, to 1918. Uh, the 
the seeds were sown throughout 1914, uh, the activities really kicked off in April of 1915 uh, with the arrest and uh, subsequent execution of, of a number of intellectual Armenians uh, in and around the Constantinople area. Um, but that that's, uh, it, you know, is, is that part of World War One? Well, it went right along with it. It was hand in hand. Um, the, the Ottoman bloodthirst as, as partial revenge for the humiliation and the massacres that they had suffered in the First Balkan War uh, and as well as they're they're blaming the Armenians for um, supporting the Russians who were fighting on the other side of World War One, and and so on and so forth, and culminating in the extermination of a of a large segment of the population. Anyway, that's tragic, and uh, I think it's really important that we yeah underscore those types of things as well because those are lesser known but of great importance make sure that we don't uh uh i mean the lessons of history type of thing we don't want to repeat any of these nightmarish scenarios yeah and and i would add that yeah especially these kinds of things if it's not part of our community history we we tend to concern ourselves less right we 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 forget world war one and world war two uh gets a lot of attention because that that's our history, but yeah, the uh, Armenian genocide—a a group of three Americans, yeah, oh, right. But um, but yeah, these these events uh, all over the world, yeah, that that needs to be part of our human consciousness. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I certainly. Thanks, Matt. So yeah, more than just the just World War One going on as far as warfare, though that's obviously the uh, takeaway that I believe most laymen would have, but it's useful well, and I think and, instructive. And as I mentioned. All of them seem to be connected, uh, and right. each one feeding into setting the stage or directly following the other. Right. Okay, Tim, did you want to take us on a little more uh, political bent on the, what was happening in that decade? Yes, and I'll start by saying uh, those of you who are discouraged by 1920, I think uh, we can all, after listening to Matt and listening to what I have to say, we can conclude and, and with some optimism say at least it's not the 1910s. Hold on. You just said people that are uh, discouraged with 1920. Do we Dang have it. a lot of, a lot of people? 2020. A lot of, uh... What's 100 years? Dang it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So, um, okay, first just a – a real quick blurb on all the nations and, and states that underwent a fundamental change in this decade. Um, Portugal uh, oh, dumped its monarchy in 1910 and became the first republic, I guess, in Europe. Um, in 1910, there, Mexico, there was a revolution and uh, Porfirio Diaz, uh, the long-ruling dictator, was ousted. 1911 started a revolution in China where the Qing dynasty was um, was uh, booted, uh, and this ended centuries and centuries of imperial rule in China, going back, um, you know, through various dynasties, essentially 2,000 years. Um, the the last emperor of China was a child. I think it was like seven or maybe 11. I get my numbers mixed up. 
um, although he he and and previous emperors were actually puppets of the Empress Dowager so she who prevented reforms which might have allowed the monarchy to continue longer we'll we'll see this pattern over and over again uh, you have um, attempts at reform as people become dissatisfied with monarchies and rulers uh, the reforms are either half-hearted or are blocked by conservatives or those in power and eventually revolution um, just throws everything out um, Japan uh, got rid of its uh, monarchy in 1912, established a republic. Uh, Matt already mentioned the Russian Bolshevik Revolution, which began in 1917, um, resulting in the death of the Tsar and his family. Um, in Germany, um, the Kaiser was, was booted in 1918. Got the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary, um, so all these places seeing uh, fundamental uh, political change. This we I, we really can look at this era as a sh modernizing shift. The the typical nation state now, uh, you know, aside from some you know military or political dictatorships, uh, is a republic of one sort or another, and this is where it really starts to starts to happen a lot. Um, of course, some things like World War I uh, greased the gears for that, um, you know, the, when uh, its end resulted in the end of a lot of different governing powers. And, and those that, that um, the, the states that retained their autonomy were still uh, cut off at the knees. Uh, for example, the, uh, the Allied powers... They demanded reparations of the um, of the central powers and um, the crippling reparations. Germany was thrust into the kind of uh, national poverty of sorts, and it uh, it crippled Germany for for years. And in fact, um, the the fallout of of that humiliation and probably even worse, the economic um, turmoil that it caused was a direct contributor to um, the rise of Hitler and and the Nazi party and and of course to World War II. So really we can see um, not that World War II was a continuation of World War I, but they are linked. Um, and the way that World War I ended was a major factor in the eventual um, start of World War II. I'm realizing I never actually mentioned who won World War One. <laughs> Unimportant. Yeah. Tim just mentioned that I, mostly. So. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Little details. Okay. Um, so other key events, uh, even in places that were, you know, much more stable, like the United States, we still saw. Um, drastic modernization so for example uh there was a a panic an economic panic in 1910 and 11 um resulting in a um an economic a severe economic downturn um a, a depression the stock market lost 26 percent of its value and the major cause of this was the enforcement of the uh, sherman antitrust act and so it it had been Pat, the act had been passed, you know, I think decades earlier in the in the 1800s, but it was really um, 
enforced in the in this decade you saw the breakup of of these huge uh monopolies you know you, you're probably familiar with the things like the standard oil company um if not by that name by the name rockefeller uh the american tobacco company so the the um american government basically broke these up and said we need free you know we need competition and um but that uh disturbed the economic landscape and um you know caused a, a depression um but but that's uh you know to this day we have you know the government takes an active role in regulating uh businesses and and um most of our listeners will will have in their living memory that, you know um news about say antitrust uh action or possible action against companies like Microsoft, um, Amazon, and so forth. So you you see um, in in our modern era echoes of this time in the past. But the, these patterns of regulation and so forth were were established uh, at this time, and so we see that happening even now. Other things that um, uh, ripples into into the modern world: the establishment of the uh, or the, the Federal Reserve Act, which established the modern uh, American central banking system. Now, we know from watching Hamilton that back at the beginning of, of the uh, our United States as a, as a um, constitutional government, the, uh, he was a key in establishing a central bank at that point. But the bank had a charter and the charter expired and was not renewed. And then later, and due to economic re- unrest, a, a second national bank was started, and then it expired, and we had a stretch of about 80 years where there wasn't a, a um, central bank and all that that accompanies. So um, in in 1913, uh, the the, anyways, the the current system was established, and that's been going to this day. And if so, if you hear about, um, for example, uh, the Federal Reserve, um, it establishes credit rates. It can lend money. Um, it's it's taking a huge role in our current economic uh, straits by um, uh, one by keeping interest rates super super low, making it making it, credit very liquid and easy easier for you know businesses to get money and stay afloat um buying bonds and so forth and and doing other things that are kind of like printing money to um to make things easier on the economy uh so there's there's worries about you know inflation and and other effects um but the the consensus seems to be at the moment and we'll see if if future podcasts about this decade um hold the current thinking that the um, the Federal Reserve and the government have have helped us to have a soft landing on our current economic uh, crisis. But anyways, um, again, this uh, this pattern was established back at, at, in the beginning of the 1900s. Um, some fun facts for you. Cherry trees were first shipped to Washington from Japan in uh well, they were first planted in 1912. There's actually a prior shipment, but it got burned because of uh, pests. And <laughs> so they sent another shipment and those were planted. And even though some people attempted to chop them down in like 1940, um, 
they uh, they're there to this day. The Panama Canal was completed. My, my wife and I just went shopping for cherry trees today oh, at a at a nursery out here. So. That, that's right, and you could go and see them for yourself, huh? <laughs> uh, I'm told they're lovely, though I've never been there when they're in bloom. But, but anyways, um, the the uh, if you're a uh, a big fan of uh, American uh, history, as in North and South American history, you might be interested to know that Machu Picchu was rediscovered, or at least discovered by Westerners, uh, by which I mean Europeans, excuse me, in 1911. Sorry, European descent, whatever. 1911 is when Machu Picchu came back on the map. Um, 1916 was the Easter Rising in Ireland, which was a, um, even though uh, Britain still retained its empire, uh, well into the into the 20th century, we were starting to see some of the cracks in the foundation. The Easter Rising in Ireland um, was a, a no. ins- armed insurrection, and it resulted in a number of executions. And these were not perceived uh, with fondness in Ireland, of course. And this was part of the the road to Irish independence. The Jal Jallianwala Bach massacre, I'm sorry for the terrible pronunciation, um, happened in 1919. This was in India. Um, the, it, it's a long story, but essentially um, the British uh, military in India opened fire on an unarmed uh, group of uh, p- pilgrims and protesters uh, killing hundreds, uh, not only killing them, but uh, shooting at them as they fled. It, it was in an enclosed space, and and so people were trying to get out through the the entryway, and the you know so they concentrated their fire on the entryway. Uh, anyways, it, it was a truly horrific uh, massacre, and it um, it was one of the events that really galvanized um, Indian. Uh, calls for Indian independence and um, and set set that path in in or that uh, those actions on the on the path to eventual Indian independence in the 1940s. What one more uh, step in the creation, the modernization of America was the 17th Amendment, the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913 which established the direct election of senators. Before then, senators, um, I, I think in most, if not all states, were appointed uh, by state legislatures. And the 17th Amendment uh, arranged for uh, you know, uh, states' senators in Congress um, would be elected directly by the state's population. And that happens to this day. Oh, yeah. That's uh, about right. all I've got. Okay. So well, should I do extinctions real quick and then I'll pass yeah, it let's, off? Yeah, let's attack. Uh, well, let's see. Maybe we can wait on extinctions until we do disasters and extinctions at the same time. Seems oh. like those things would go well together. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Which will transition nicely. Okay, so I'm going to take us slightly lighter than uh, that. I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also comment that the uh, the child that you hear in the background there is her birthday. So we clearly oh. want to celebrate this yeah. as a podcast first. We have a birthday child. Hey, so happy Claire, birthday. Say, it's my birthday. 
Oh, right, <laughs> yeah. Say, not I'm really not. two years old. Yeah. She has particular memories of the 1910s, but, you know, might as well. I guess we'll have to wait and find out. Um, okay, so moving on from war and politics, uh, we're going to take a brief side uh, step here and talk a little bit about uh, the uh, science and technology of uh, the 1910s. Before we do that, wanted to once again, I like giving updates on our listener base in the podcast so that we can say thank you to our worldwide audience. India coming up strong. Um, so thank you to uh, all of the uh, citizens there. And uh, they're about to take over the United Kingdom as our uh, let's see, fourth place country. So um, Austria, Canada, uh, no, Austria, Austria actually is listening, but Australia and Canada also doing um, great. So um, let's continue spreading this. Singapore, Ireland, uh, the Netherlands, so Huya Dach. Um, but, uh, hey, hey, I think we should say phrases from each of these countries, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I already like, tried to have you do the Australian accent for the whole um, podcast and you failed. So what, what if we made that a podcast topic like catchphrases Yay! from every country? <laughs> we could, but let's not. Um, OK, I'm going to move on to science and technology here. So I've got a list of things. I'm going to handle these pretty briefly because we're running on to a long podcast. But um, there was a lot of things going on in the 1910s. Despite worldwide wars, there was still a lot of science and technology um, being uh, developed and, and uh, discovered So and invented. Uh, radio programming uh, really started taking off in the 1910s. So people really started listening into the radio. Uh, vacuum cleaners and washing machines. So vacuum uh, cleaners were actually invented in, in, uh, uh, in the, the, the 1900s. Uh, so it's something I omitted last uh, podcast. Can't obviously cover everything. But, um, but vacuum cleaners and washing machines starting to have more uh, role in the daily, uh, you know, the, um, the actual American life. So these are the American um, inventions, I believe. And... Um, so they were commercially available, and uh, but usually generally too expensive. Uh, the telephone was becoming far more popular as well. Um, millions of Americans had them in their homes, um, and then cars. And so this is so 1913. The Model T Ford, uh, the uh, uh, Henry Ford, invented or implemented the modern assembly line. So the Model T was uh, also something I didn't mention in the last decade, but started being developed, uh, being produced in the 1900s. But in 1913, the modern assembly line turned that into a, a mass-produced automobile. And that's when things started uh, becoming, um, obviously, far more ubiquitous in the, uh, for cars. So... Um, in 1911, uh, super con superconductivity was uh, discovered by a Dutch physicist uh, named. You think I'd be able to say his name given I, I at least nominally speak Dutch, but dang, uh, Heike Kamerling Onis. That's, uh, that's pronounced Jerry Lewis. <laughs> ah, okay. Thank you, Tim. I'm sure Jerry <laughs> yeah. Lewis discovered superconductivity. <laughs> Um, 
he cooled a sample a sample of mer- mercury and uh, and then noticed that uh, his he wrote in his notebook uh null meaning the mercury uh, practically zero so the resistance in the mercury had dropped and there's nothing nothing so it become a superconductor and that's when superconductivity was uh, discovered if you like I uh, a layman isn't entirely sure what superconductivity what role it has these days it's in our MRI machines. Uh, it's used in uh, particle colliders, and if we were ever to find out how to use it uh, at, at other than extreme temperatures, it could sur- serve a lot of other purposes. But as of yet, we have not um, been able to use it outside of uh, find any superconductive material that is not, you know, at extreme temperatures, either near absolute zero or something like that. So maybe we make uh, that a future podcast: the uh, discussion of superconductivity. Good. That would be interesting. Um, all right, 1913, we've got the first crossword puzzle, which, and that surprised me. I've, it seems like something that you know they would have had back in the Roman days or something, you know, but uh, apparently not as interested in crossword puzzles uh, during um, the Roman Empire as I would have uh, first assumed. But the um, that was published in the New York World, and uh, obviously took off from there. Uh, 1911. So this one, uh, I think at least people, uh, you know, in their 30s, which I am, and um, have some nostalgic feelings for us. the Erector set was first put out in 1911. Um, and Matt, I believe, has some bad memories of an Erector set, uh, making well, contact with his eye. That makes no sense to anyone who is listening in who wasn't there. But Moving they, they could. We're, 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 we're looping them into our world, you know. Anyway, I'd the erector set. Not. <laughs> the erector our world set. Is chaotic and, well, never mind. <laughs> the erector set uh, well, came out in 1911. And if you don't know what that is, uh, the, it says the toy was billed uh, as an educational device capitalizing on the societal drive for success and an uh, emphasis on science and technology vocations. So generally, these little pieces of metal and bolts and things that you can kind of put together and make structures out of. And it's supposed to be for uh, the idea that we can you know, use these uh, to help kids become engineers. So um, they were they were fun. Uh, they were also dangerous. So. Um, Okay, 1919. This is something Tim did not mention, and I don't know what where the rest of the world stood in, uh, on this topic. But in 1919, uh, the National Prohibition Act passed in Congress in the United States. Um, sorry, yeah, um, sorry for uh, omitting the Prohibition Act. That's all right. So uh, alcohol outlawed. Um, so 1913. Uh, th- once again, things that you just assume were around for a lot longer than they actually have been. The zipper uh, was invented, and wow, I mean that's just over 100 years ago. You kind of just, well, maybe I assumed that that was something that would kind of existed in the, you know, the uh, pale Paleolithic era. You know, just yeah. uh, we don't discuss how awkward things was for people wearing jeans back before then. Do we usually discuss uh, discuss how awkward things was, Tim? I don't think we discuss how awkward things was. things was. Is that what I said? That is. Uh, <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> anyway, uh, trying to yes. help our, you know, backwoods listening population <laughs> feel more at ease with our or something. Yeah, or something. Uh, the other thing that was um, uh, invented, I believe, also in 1913, was the bra brazier. Uh, 
And that, once again, surprised me. Uh, the modern bra, I guess. So before that, a lot of corsets being worn by uh, the women. So uh, thankfully, they uh, came up with something uh, better than that. Um, all right. So 1913, there was also stainless steel. Uh, I guess that was more of an accidental discovery. It was uh, the man that was that uh, discovered it was doing work in metallurgy, but didn't uh, was looking more um, for something specific and then discovered that the stainless steel uh, alloy that he had made resisted rust very well. And uh, so he thought, oh, this could be useful across um, lots of uh, uh, lots of scenarios. And his name was Harry Brearley. So. Um, a couple other just interesting notes before we move on, uh, move on to extinctions and uh, catastrophes. Um, the word vitamin was coined in 1911 by a biochemist, Casimir Funk. Uh, 1918, the, words, the nation, so our, the, United, uh, the United States, uh, first three-color traffic light was installed in New York City. So uh, Interesting. 1919 mechanical system for transmitting television pictures is patented. So we got the beginning of a, a television in 1919. Uh, and then uh, Hollywood uh, in the 1910s started replacing the East Coast as where the movie industry was uh, uh, set. So um, that's a little bit about science, technology, and a little bit of culture. We're missing Cameron today, so I, I took a little bit of culture and uh, wove it in there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, a little things are becoming um more modern uh, across the uh, the United States and across the world, and we're lots of amazing discoveries of, in that decade, despite uh, world wars going on. So, uh, Matt and Tim, let's. Uh, I guess we can hit uh, Tim first. Actually, let's do uh, extinctions um, quickly. So, um, you you'll find um, lots of. Uh, like localized species extinction. So, for example, in this decade, the um, the Newfoundland wolf went extinct. So, lots of island um, species are particularly vulnerable because they have small area and they're not, um, you know, they're they're prone to exposure shock when by invasive species or or human activity. Uh, anyways, um, the Carolina parakeet went extinct in this decade, and um, notably the passenger pigeon, and that's notable because it was at one point a very numerous, um, it had a had a vast population, and, um, you know, you, the accounts from Europeans in the, in the eastern United States would talk of these huge flocks, and um, it, it took a particular amount of a particular effort with hubris and uh, this kind of careless, uh, callous carelessness to to drive the passenger pigeon to extinction. But it was successfully done. The last passenger pigeon died in the in the uh, in the, this decade. So. All right, Matt, did you want to let us know about a few of the uh, one particular um, very timely. Timely is not the word I'm looking for. Uh, relevant. That's the word I'm looking for. Relevant uh, catastrophe that happened in the 1910s. A timely catastrophe. There's no <laughs> timely catastrophes, but there are relevant catastrophes. Ones Indeed. that are. Uh, yes. Okay, Matt. Okay. So, well, okay. 
compared to the 1900s, uh, the 1910s were actually a little bit lighter on disasters, you know, outside of World War I. Um, but we count that as a separate category. Um, rather, I'm sorry, they were, they were light on the number of significant disasters. Um, there, there was one major one that uh, dwarfed anything that had come before it. Um, so kind of going in, in uh, sort of chronological order. Uh, in 1912, you have the loss of the Titanic, uh, which, I mean, many of us are familiar with the Titanic, uh, if not from, you know, knowing history or this podcast from the 1997 James Cameron film, which was terrible. Um, but this, again, goes back to uh, how we talked about last time. This was, as we are just beginning to figure out that we need to have things like safety standards and code and stuff like that. And so the Titanic uh, was engineered with some specific flaws that made it unable to sustain the damage that it took. Um, and uh, it, it was not outfitted with sufficient lifeboats. It was uh, all, all kinds of things went bad with this thing. Um, you, you lost 1,500 people uh, with the Titanic after it crashed, uh, after it smacked an iceberg and, and its hull was uh, punctured. The Titanic had two sister ships, uh, the Britannic and the Olympic. The Olympic went on to serve a long and distinguished career. The Britannic did not. Uh, or rather, it, um, well, I mean, it served a distinguished career, but not a long one. The Britannic was pressed into service as a troop ship or, or hospital ship, rather, during World War I and served, uh, you know, served with the British. Uh, in 1916, it apparently hit a mine and, and was holed. Thanks to some of the advancements and the lessons learned from the Titanic, uh, this the the ship was lost, but the the loss of life was much lower. Uh, about thirty people lost, and and over a thousand were rescued. As as the ship was close to an island, it had enough lifeboats, uh, and and uh, help was able to arrive much more quickly from nearby British ships. Um, there there was some loss of life. Uh, the a, after the the ship was damaged in the explosion as the captain was assessing the damage and, and could see an island nearby. Uh, he attempted to steer the ship to the island in, in hopes of beaching it to prevent it from sinking, which would have been great. The Britannic, however, was starting to list pretty badly. And uh, a number of people on deck, the, the captain had not ordered the lifeboats to be deployed. In fact, he had ordered lifeboats not to be deployed uh, as they were trying to make for this island. Uh, however, some people decided that they knew better and launched two of the lifeboats uh, as the ship was still under power. Uh, unfortunately, those lifeboats were, were pulled into the vortex of the only partially submerged propellers and the lifeboats were shredded and the passengers along with them. And so that you had that loss of life on the Britannic, which was probably avoidable. Um, going back to ships, I, I mentioned the Lusitania. The, the Lusitania was uh, another ocean liner. It was sunk during World War I, 
by a German submarine and uh, 128 Americans were were lost uh, among the almost 1,200 uh, total that were killed there. The, the fact that Americans were killed uh, because of a German action was a factor in, in bringing us into the war, as, as we talked about. Um, jumping back to uh, 19... Uh, and, and I'm sorry, I said chronological order, and I'm not doing that. 1914, you had uh, Mount Sakurajima erupted in Japan. Uh, only th 35 people were killed. I, I say only. That's still a loss of life. Um, but this actually... Uh, resulted in some permanent landscape changes. You had a, a new isthmus that was formed uh, between Sakurajima and, and the mainland. Uh, Sakurajima is apparently the most active volcano in Japan, still active today. Um, 1916, you had uh, a series of shark attacks on the Jersey Shore. Um, now, say what you will about the Jersey Shore and the desirability of shark attacks there, especially during the MTV series being filmed. Uh, but you had a, <laughs> about four people that were killed in the shark attacks. This was kind of uh, difficult, though, because um, you, you had all these beaches that weren't safe now because sharks are out there chomping people. And, and unfortunately, this is in the middle of, of, of a heat wave and a polio epidemic that had driven large numbers of people to the seashore to seek respite, you know, the, the sea air and the natural remedies that that provides. Uh, so that was no good. All these people come to the Jersey shore seeking recovery and, and then sharks. Um, and is it possible that the, the uh, spike in attacks was due to the fact that there was more people getting in the water or, you know, I, I think it's due to the fact that nature hates people sometimes. I, I honestly have no idea. Um, but yeah, that, that was the thing. In 1916, there was a, a newspaper headline, Government Aid to Fight Shark Horror. I mean, it's, it's a little bit... Anyway. In 1917, you have uh, another major one. This is the Halifax Explosion, where you had, again, World War One. you have a ship carrying high explosives from Canada to France uh, collides with uh, an unladen ship uh, near Halifax Harbor or, or Harbor. Um, a fire starts on board this uh, French cargo ship, the Mont Blanc. Fire spreads to the hold and ignites it, kicks off what was at the time the largest man-made explosion in history. Uh, and 2,000 people are, are killed, not on the ship, but rather in, in the uh, communities um, nearby as, as this massive explosion um, not only flings debris everywhere, but also creates a tsunami. Uh, so you, you have 2,000 people, um, just uh, there, there's a uh, Native American uh, community nearby, I believe, the, the Mi Kamak, who are essentially wiped out by the tsunami, um, and and it's well, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, Halifax is devastated. Basically, every building in a half mile radius of this explosion on the shore is flattened. Um, the explosion, in terms of energy, was roughly equivalent to 2.9 thousand tons 
of TNT. Um, that is close to a low-yield nuclear weapon. So, big explosion on the ship. And then finally, the, the big disaster that we'll cover uh, is the flu pandemic of 1918 and if, if you think we have it bad now you, you have no idea um, this uh, disaster the the Spanish flu is um, it, it is massively contagious and massively fatal uh, and it it does not just prey on on the the sick or the elderly it it, it actually seems to have a preference for healthy young people um, but at the end of the day it kills between 50 and 100 million people worldwide and that is a ridiculous number and it's a ridiculous variation in the number we don't even know really how many people this killed but um it, it, absolutely massive we talked about the chinese floods in our podcast last time and how bad those were uh this is at least twice that um and it's it, it's just absolutely devastating as if world war one were not bad enough uh, World War One killed. Uh, I, I, we already talked about it. It killed tens of millions, um, but the low end of the Spanish flu estimate is about the high end of of what you would see of all of. Well, it's it's more than what you would see from from the World War One casualties. Yeah, that's wild. That was uh, a, a a particularly grim uh, decade. Uh, kind of strange when you look at. There's not as many disasters and and not as many large scale ones, but the one that we did have, especially the flu pandemic, was uh, absolutely devastating in terms of human life lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, important that we uh, that we underscore. Yeah, we don't want to do that again. We don't want to do World War One again. We don't want to do uh, pan- that pandemic loss of life again. So any of these things that we can avoid. Um, we should probably take the steps that make sense. And so 1910 is very relevant to decade these days. Uh, and so let's uh, let's take those lessons and, uh, and make sure we don't uh, repeat history, or at least not the bad parts of it. If we want to continue discovering superconductivity, that's probably good. But the World War, stu- World War stuff, let's avoid that. Um, so uh, that will wrap us to uh, bring us to the end of this podcast. And uh, we'll see you back again next week for the 19, uh, the roaring... 20s? Is it the Roaring Twenties? Well, whatever. Yeah, it will yeah, be now. The Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. The Depressing Thirties. That's the one. <laughs> All right, and that uh, that'll be it.